Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU, as always, my co-host, Arsen Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. We're live at the Boulder Bookstore, delighted to be here with Colorado author Kelly Fajardo Anstein talking about her latest novel, Woman of Light. And for this portion of the show, we're going to be uh, reading some of the audience questions. So we're going to go jump right in. Will there be a sequel or a follow-up book for these characters? I kind of alluded to that in, in the uh, broadcast. It seems perfect. And the way the end is it sort of feels like there definitely could be one. Well, never say never, but uh, no. <laughs> um, not right now. I, I want my next book, um, what I'm thinking about is dystopian and set in the future. Um, and I've been telling my agent about this one for like seven years, and I, I feel like she's daring me to actually do it. Um, but I, I get asked all the time, too, are you going to write a sequel for Sabrina and Karina? And, you know, I might. I actually, I think one of the characters that I do want to know more about as a young person is Simodicia. Um, but she dies. Oops, spoiler. Ooh, ooh. Okay. Um, but everybody dies. So anyway, that's not a spoiler. That's not a spoiler. Um, a prequel. So, yeah, maybe. And I, I do think... I do want to write a novel about my family's experiences from the 70s to the 90s. So there, there will be a book coming about those decades. All right. Well, you've, you talk about how you write a lot about your family and a lot of the family members inspire these characters or have certain biographical details in common with the characters. So this question is, were any of your family members offended by what you wrote? No, um, my family has felt very silenced and invisible in the historical record in very big ways. And my mom is actually the, the first writer in my family. I'm not the first writer. My mom has published children's books and cookbooks, and she has a collection of stories of women in the Southwest called Return of the Corn Mothers. And so I'm actually continuing on a family legacy of storytelling and writing. My godmother, when she read Woman of Light, uh, she said that she read it twice, and she said that she looked up at heaven, and she told um, her uncle Jakey and her Aunt Mary, she said, look, there's a book about us. And they're just really proud and really honored because we have just been overlooked for so long, and people like our families. Has your book been translated into Spanish? Yeah, Mujer de Luz will be out later this summer. Um, I worked with a translator from Mexico City, and he actually, our culture was so foreign to him that we got into these like incredible long emails. And there will be a glossary of terms that we use in Denver and the Southwest for readers in Spanish. Uh, because they don't know what pozole is. I was like, what? You've never had pozole? <laughs> like, yeah, so I'm really excited about Mujer de Luz. And there actually will be an audiobook in Spanish as well. Well, Hunter asks, having done so much, much research into Denver's history, how has your relationship or perception of your home, has that changed? It's enriched my entire life. Uh, now when I walk by a building, I have some knowledge of what, what was in that building. Oh, this was a finance area. Oh, that was a saddle maker shop. Um, it's really given me a lot of historical context. And that's why I would encourage all of you to research and learn about the places that you come from, because it's just gonna give you a lot more to think about. You know, I, I never get bored. I'm one of those people that if I get bored, I'm like, oh, I better go on a walk and look around and learn about places. 
Um, but it's also made me realize that some of the misfortune and trauma that has befallen my family was systemic. It, I thought we just had bad luck. That's why we lost all of our houses in the city. That's why there was foreclosures and reverse mortgages. No, it was not bad luck. It was redlining and being withheld bank loans. And so learning that there was a larger system against us, it's really connected me to my ancestors in a bigger way. So how do you balance historical research with the emotional narrative? And I think this is interesting. Like, I think this is a good question for a lot of novelists. Like, You learn so much, and you have so much research on whatever you're doing. But as a novelist, you've got to tell an emotional story that moves forward. Yeah, you know, I think I'm a character-based novelist. And I, 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 we've talked a lot about characters. I don't know if you're picking up on this. Um, and I let them have autonomy. So yeah, I go and I learn cool things about their jobs. I'll tell you, when I was first writing Luce's scenes in the law office, I was myself working at the League of Women Voters of Denver in like an old 1930s office. And those scenes were mind-numbingly boring because I had all this first-hand research knowledge of just filing and indexing and just like sending out mass emails. So those scenes were just like incredibly, you couldn't even read it, you would cry. My agent was like, no one's gonna like this book. Come on, you gotta get this out of here. Um, so then I used the research to actually complement the character. So I think about, well, what does Luce really want? Well, she wants to move up in class. She wants to make friends. She wants to go out to dances. And then I think about how can I move her as like my little doll to something that's more fun for her. Um, I let them have autonomy, and that also gets me into trouble sometimes because these characters often do things that I don't approve of as an author, and they make a lot of mistakes. So I think balancing the research but also allowing your characters to feel fully human and let them do bad things. Um, I think some of the responses to this novel have been, I wish so-and-so was a better person. Well, I'm sorry, they're not. And we have to learn how to work with some people even if they're not always the best person. Well, we have some questions for potentially aspiring writers, it sounds like. Would you have any advice for young writers from a background like your own? Yeah. I would say don't give up. There's going to be a lot of doors that are closed and slammed in your face, and they're going to reject you over and over for 10 years. That's what happened to me. I don't know if it's going to happen to you. Um, <laughs> but I would say like, really celebrate your wins um, when those happen. Like Any little journal acceptance, any time that somebody reads a new draft and they like something that you're doing, really allow yourself to sit in that feeling and remember what it feels like. Also, you have to write. You have to read books and you have to write. I am a atypical learner, I have ADHD. It was really hard for me to write a novel, to sit there at the desk every single day. I still can't believe I did this. Like When I look at this book, I'm like, wow, that was a lot of hours of forcing myself to work. Um, so I would say just keep going, keep working, and build your network. Go to conferences, make friends, meet mentors, and keep building it and building it because those are the people that are going to support you when you actually have a book out. They're going to rush to the store and they're going to buy it and you're going to sign it and you're going to say, I can't believe I got here, but I believe you can get there. So just keep going. But related to that, somebody else asks, how do you tamp down any negative voices that tell you not to write and that you're not good enough? So that might be an internal 
dialogue going on or even if you get negativity externally? Well, I learned this the hard way. Do not read your Goodreads. <laughs> Don't look in there. Um, and you know, with Sabrina and Karina, I, it was hard to get feedback. In the very beginning, I was turning into workshops. And I'll never forget, I was in a workshop in San Diego. And there was a white woman of a very different class. I'm from the working class, this person, probably rich. Um, she said about my story, Remedies, it's about a little boy who is a half-sibling of this little girl. And the mother takes him in. And this, this woman raised her hand in the workshop, and she said, nobody has a life like this. This would never happen. And I thought, I have a life like this? I was like, this is based on my real life, you know? And I just I felt so sad and dejected. And I actually I wrote a sort of a, a revenge piece. Like, my next story was really going to get him. And then they loved it. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. And I thought, OK, I'm going to use this as fuel. So as long as you have your taste level and you know where you want to go and you can aim for that, you really have to take these negative voices with a grain of salt. Because if they're not trying to uplift you, they're trying to actually diminish you. So just keep going forward. Don't listen to them unless you think there's something that's going to help you be a better writer. But use that as fuel to keep pushing yourself forward. I have another question from an aspiring writer. This is very specific and actually ties into a show we had a few months ago. But I'll ask it of you, and then I might chip in about what happened on the show a few months ago. I am interested in writing a novel someday. I have a Jewish heritage, but otherwise, I am a white middle class. What do you think you'd like to see? You want me to tell you a novel to write? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Same with Decia's um, next story. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so I think I, I run into these questions sometimes. You're like, I'm boring. I have nothing to say. Well, you have to develop your worldview. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you're the dominant uh, members of society or the non-dominant, you have a very particular way of looking at the world that only you have. So one of the things I would do for that person who asked that question is I would practice. I would look at a situation or a butterfly or something and try to figure out what is the way that I can describe this that has never been described before. You really have to get in touch with you as the individual and you as the person. You all have a purpose and you all have a reason to be here. And it does not matter if you come from a background that we've heard a thousand times or a background we've never heard. It's just important that you tap into what makes you special and what makes you unique. So the, 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 this came up on a show we did with Stephen Schwartz, who's a great Colorado writer. I'd highly recommend him. And I asked him, he's in his 60s now, and I said, what was it like you know, growing up as a Jewish writer, or somebody who wanted to be a Jewish writer, during the age of Malamud and Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and Heim Potok. I mean, the Jewish writers in the 60s and 70s were, were huge. I mean, that was kind of the golden era. And he was funny. He, he said it was very intimidating. It made him think, like, where is there room for me to write in this world? So I thought that was very interesting, because it's kind of the opposite situation that Kali talks about with you know, her story not being seen, you know? But Stephen writes great books, and he has managed to find his own voice. Well, he wrote about the Jewish experience in Colorado, which is pretty unique, yeah. so there you go. Um, 
What made you want to add an LGBTQ character? Do you think someone in your own life or in the community influenced your life and writing? I guess those are two separate questions. Yeah, I, I mean, I live my life among LGBTQ people. Like, I live my life among people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, queer, queer people are a big part of my existence and a big part of my own life, personally. And all my books have queer characters. Uh, Sabrina and Karina, Sisters, that is a about a lesbian in the 1950s. There's this really fabulous gay uh, funeral director in the story, Sabrina and Karina. Um, but, you know, my godfather, Napoleon, he died of AIDS shortly after I was born and after he baptized me. And I always felt like he was sort of watching over me. And when I, I grew up in this family of seven children, and it was really rare that you get one-on-one -on -one attention with your parents. Uh, there's just so much going on. Um, but I would talk to my godfather in heaven, and I really felt like he was guiding me and helping me. And this is a gay man. Like, this is my best friend in heaven. And that's from the time I was a very, very little baby. I knew that. So you always see queer characters in my books because this is what it means to be human. We have people of all genders, all sexualities, um, all races, and all backgrounds. Well, you said earlier, if you want to be a writer, you got to be a reader. Yeah. And so what is your current TBR to be read? What, what, what are you hoping to read or what are you reading now? Well, I'm, I'm right now, I just got sent this wonderful memoir, Solito, by Javier Zamora. Um, Javier is a child who, he migrated from El Salvador at eight years old. And I think his memoir is the first memoir of a child from El Salvador that came on, he's an unaccompanied minor. Um, so I've just started it, it's absolutely beautiful. Javier is a poet, so you can imagine the language is just so stunning. Uh, my friend Taylor Broby just published a novel, um, Boys in Oil, and he is a gay man from the Dakotas, and this is sort of his memoir, his coming of age, but also with the backdrop of oil. Um, and he's an incredible, incredible writer. And I met him at a residency and we just like stayed up all night drinking gin and tonics. So I, I always have that wonderful memory. Um, I'm curious about the new Cormac McCarthy. So if you guys have any uh, galleys you wanna pass over. They went, they went so fast. Really? Like, oh my gosh. I bet they did. I opened the envelope and I was like, that's the Cormac, and somebody had to grabbed it already. You know, yeah. like so. We've only gotten one copy of each one so far. I'll keep you in mind, though. Okay, I promise. Okay. That's okay. I'll read it when it comes out with the rest of the people. <laughs> what What three books do you love or are inspired by? Like, what are your What's your go-to yeah. few books? So, Geek Love by Catherine Dunn is a big influence on me. Uh, Geek Love. My hairdresser told me about it when I was nineteen. And he was like cutting my hair, and he's like, Tim Burton bought the rights, but he'll never be able to make a movie. It's too crazy. Uh, but I love that because, you know, those those characters, they're they're circus freaks. This is the term that Catherine Dunn uses, and they're also marginalized people. And performers have been marginalized in this country as well. Um, I also love Lost in the City by Edward P. Jones. That book really allowed me to write Sabrina and Karina. Um, he writes about the black American experience in Washington, D.C. Just incredible, rich detail, such smart structure, beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and I love The Rain God by Arturo Islas. I always recommend this at every talk I do. 
Islas was the first Chicano to ever receive a major contract from a New York publisher, and that was in 1990. Um, so you can imagine this is not that long ago and what he was up against. He um, got AIDS shortly after and he died. And he never got to have a mainstream audience. And so I told myself if I ever made it as a writer, I would tell other people to read The Rain God. A beautiful book. What are your favorite music artists? They said top five, but you can, you know, you can do however many you want. Yeah. Well, I love Bob Dylan, um, as you probably have guessed, because the epigraph for Sabrina and Karina comes from Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Um, and so growing up, I would, I would get Bob Dylan's lyrics, I would print them off bobdylan.com, and then I would go and sit on my bedroom floor and I would analyze the rhythm and the structure. Um, so yeah, I'm a big Bob Dylan dork. I also really loved Miles Davis when I was growing up, Kind of Blue. I wrote a lot uh, to Miles Davis. Uh, Patsy Cline has a big influence on a lot of my work, all the sadness. Um, and my, I remember she was like the one white lady that my great grandma would listen to. And she was like, oh, I really feel connected to Patsy Cline. Um, so I, I always felt very connected. Um, but my older sister, Asia Fajardo Diamond, is a jazz musician. And so I grew up with like tons of jazz in the house. And when I write, I write mostly to jazz um, and actually silence. But there's a lot. I can, I can keep going. But if you would have caught me like 15 years ago, like all I did was go to shows. So now I'm not. Now I go to like book reading. <laughs> I've changed. <laughs> well, you did say you never read your Goodreads, but you might want to hop on because somebody in the audience gave you five stars on Goodreads for so Woman of Light. <laughs> Um, they ask, they're curious about the research that you've done to describe Denver and Colorado um, in the past. So what is your research process? Yeah, it's, it's pretty layered. So I started out with no research. Get this. I just turned in this book to my agent, never researched a thing. And she was like, what? <laughs> this is like 2015. I'm like living in this dinky like place in Durango. Um, and she, she wanted to have a phone call. She never wanted to talk on the phone back then. And I thought this was like going to be it. We're going to go out, for, you know, we're going to sell this baby. And she was like, no, you need to start over and you need to do some research. Um, so I took that as a challenge and I started visiting archives and museums and dri driving all over the Southwest. But there was one big issue and that is Chicanos and mixed indigenous people like my family, we were not in the archives. Nobody had collected our stories in this big way. So then I pivoted back to my family and I interviewed my elders. I got out the recorder, interviewed my godmother, interviewed my grandpa, but I got really lucky because my mother, as I said, she's a writer, Renee Fajardo, and she also had the impulse to collect oral history for my great-grandma. So I used an oral history tape with my great-grandma as sort of my master document. I went through and I wrote down all the key words, everything that she was talking about. Uh, the Park Lane Hotel where my grandpa Al used to work, um, the different incidences that would happen in the family. I mean, that's how I found out that my Aunt Mary walked to the city pregnant. Um, and so after that, then I began researching and picking apart different um, key words that she had mentioned. And you've got to become friends with the librarians and the archivists. They're going to help you. And they're, they're like my best buds all over the region. This question ties in a little bit. You've mentioned your editor a couple times now. So what was the most challenging part of the editing process? 
<laughs> Copy edits. <laughs> um, you know, I, we don't actually talk, I don't really talk about this very much, but um, so I, I'm on One World, which is this incredible groundbreaking imprint, and my editor is a black woman named Nicole Counts. So I'm really, really lucky that I have such a smart and perceptive and just refreshing editor. Um, and she allows me to do things that I think maybe other editors would be like, let's, let's tone this down. Um, but when I got my copy edits back, you know, the copy editors, you don't really know them or see them, but the first copy editor assumed that I wasn't a native English speaker. And I can't speak Spanish, I can't speak anything else, all I speak is English. And this was really traumatic for me, especially as somebody who, I have a GED, I dropped out of my first grad school program, and I've been nominated for the National Book Award and someone's telling me I can't speak English. Um, and so there are things that we don't really talk about sometimes in the editorial process that are still upholding a certain level of grammar. Um, but my family doesn't use that traditional grammar that we learn in school. We speak in cadence, we speak in other rhythms. Um, so just learning to work with the way that I use the English language um, and just saying forget it, like get me a new copy editor, which they did. They, did, they were so nice and they got me a brand new one. And we went through and we did it again. <laughs> I mean, when I hear that, that to me is like, that's a pop problem with the publishing industry. And I'm sure that's writ large. And, and actually connected to that, this is a shout out from your five-star Goodreads reviewer. Says, thank you for showing the true diversity of our state. And I want to sort of pick up from that and, and talk about something. We actually talked about this a few years ago when Sabrina and Karina came out and you came to the book club. Um, when you were growing up, the impact of not reading stories that reflect your true experience. And as somebody growing up in Denver, somebody growing up in Colorado with very deep roots in this region, I mean, talk a little bit about that, about how we need to have more diversity in Colorado literature, or what was that impact not seeing yourself in any of these stories? Well, I think the biggest impact of not seeing yourself in books is that you think you don't belong there. If you read a thousand books and they're all white children living in boxcars, or like, you know, it's all Harriet the Spy and she's a little blonde white girl and like you just read over and over again and you see a certain kind of person or a certain kind of house, a certain kind of neighborhood, you start to think, well, why would anyone want to hear about us? Why would they want to hear about the kinds of foods we eat or the kinds of stories we tell? And it starts to make you feel small. So the biggest thing for reading diverse books, and th that goes for people who do see themselves in books, it's important to realize that Characters can have fully fleshed out human lives even if they don't look like you. But the issue is when you come from a, a marginalized background that you don't see in books, you start to think you don't belong there. So I always tell people I never dreamed. Like my publisher just sent me new copies of Woman of Light or the cover and it says national bestseller. I never dreamed that I could even publish novels let alone become a bestseller because I had no models for that. So it's important that we allow people to be able to dream larger than what we've been given in the past. But related to that, somebody asks, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Yes, <laughs> definitely. I was like, I'm gonna be a famous writer. I'm in eighth grade and I'm writing these little stories and my mom's sending me to therapy because she's finding them and they're too sad. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like this is my calling. Like, this is my purpose. I was put here, and this is what I'm doing with it. And I'm, I'm just so glad that my destiny worked out for me because, 
I got fired from a lot of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so this question I have here is, seems like a leading question, but they must know this about you. Talk about the library being your favorite place to write. Yeah, so I, I mentioned that I grew up in this family of seven children. So with the parents, it's nine, but the person sleeping in the garage and the other person sleeping on the couch is like 15 people in a house. Um, so um, there's no quiet. There's no space that's just your own. You usually share a bedroom. And I learned early on that you could go to the library and you could get your own little nook. And I also learned something really cool is that you can reserve a private room. And to this day, I go with my little ball cap and I have no makeup on and I'm like sitting there and I'm working on my novels in the private room of a library. And I'm always like, do you think they recognize me? Like, <laughs> they don't, they have no idea who I am and they do not care because that's what the library is for. It's for you to come and utilize it and to work. I just wish, you know, it's really cool when they're open until like midnight during finals on a campus. I just wish that was like all the time. Well, kind of related to that, somebody asks, how has community affected your writing? I mean, you've talked about they're a very central focal point of a community being a, a geographic, like a real central place for you to write. But how has just community in general impacted you and affected your writing? Yeah, so I come from a family that's very community centered. My mother is essentially an activist. Um, I grew up and part of the indigenous communities in Denver, the Aztec dance communities, the Chicano arts communities. I don't write books that are about one single person just alone in a room. We're meeting all kinds of characters, we're going to different locations, and it really helped me realize that I'm part of a communal identity. Sometimes I say we when I'm talking about myself. I don't say I, I say, well, when we are doing this, or. And people have started asking me about that. What do you mean you don't, you don't do that or we don't do that anymore? And I meant, oh, my community. So I also think that it comes from like a big family of seven children. It just changes the way you think about um, the individual I. How would you describe yourself as a writer? I mean, do you see yourself as a Colorado writer or a Western writer? I mean, I see it's all of these things because there's such a strong sense of place. but. You know, you can't be pigeonholed, but do you have a sense of that yourself? I'm an American novelist, baby. <laughs> um, Best-selling, yeah. award-winning. No, um, that's what my Wikipedia says, and I'm all, ooh, that looks good. Um, yeah, I'm a Colorado writer, I'm a Denver writer, I'm an Arvada writer, I'm a girl who got kicked out of some places in Boulder writer. Um, but, I, and I, yeah, I'm a woman writer, I'm a Chicana writer, I'm a mixed writer. Like, you can keep adding all those things that you want. I'm a short story writer. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I want to represent our country. I want people to think about this is what America is. So I really like the idea of being an American writer. I think that's a record number of questions from the <laughs> audience. I'm glad we got through, I think, all of them. But it's been an absolute joy. I have to say, we're so proud to have you. We think of you as our own, your Colorado writer, local writer. Callie Fajardo Anstein has been our guest after hours at the Radio Book Club, speaking about her latest book, Woman of Light. Thank you so much. Thank you.